please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount with only two more sermons left. And in these remaining verses in chapter 7, Jesus leaves his listeners and now us, his readers, with a series of metaphors to explain the choice that we have before us. And the choice is this, will we be wise and listen to his sermon, to his teaching, or will we choose our own way? So Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Matthew writes, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we are here, and we want to be taught by you and your spirit. So teach us this morning, humble our hearts, make us have hearts of good soil, ready to receive whatever you have for us, and may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2017, I think there was a shift in our culture. Uh, One ordinary October afternoon, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted two words. Does anybody know what those two words were? Me too. And a movement was born. Since that tweet, thousands have joined in with those two words and hundreds have had their lives flipped upside down. You could argue that this was the beginning of what we now call cancel culture. At the core of this culture is a belief that people must be held accountable for their actions. And a product of this culture is where many people, like you and me, watch and observe celebrities, some who we've grown to love, become silenced and are canceled because of their actions. This morning, my interest is not in evaluating this movement, but to point out the fact that we are very familiar with having the truth come to the surface about a certain individual, and then becoming confused or angered or saddened by this revelation. And unfortunately, we as the church, we're not immune to this. We can think of pastors and ministry leaders who have fallen recently. We read their books We listened to their sermons. We adopted their ministry models. However, there was a hidden part of their life that finally came to the surface, revealing who they truly were behind closed doors. 
Intentional or not, there was a deception from these people. They were acting one way in public, one way at work, and one way around certain people. But in their home, on the road, in a hotel room, while no one else was watching, their true self came out. Their reputation was much different than their true character. And this is what our passage is about this morning. Jesus is claiming that there will be people who appear innocent and pure like a sheep, but on the inside are a wolf. He says that two trees will look similar, but one will produce good and healthy fruit, while the other will produce corrupt and diseased fruit. And he even goes so far to say that some will call him Lord and will have performed mighty works and miracles. But Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You aren't legitimate. And I think we really understand this because of our cultural moment. People aren't always who they appear to be. But with that being said, because we follow Jesus, we know there is hope for us, uh, for this not to be a reality for us as Christians. All right, so let's learn together to how to avoid becoming like so many others. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets and false teachers are two titles discussed in Scripture, and there are differences between the two, okay? But for our purposes this morning, I will talk about them under one umbrella, as someone who is opposed to God, opposed to His truth, and opposed to His ways, all right? False prophets can usually be identified by what they consistently do not talk about rather than what they do talk about. Let me say that again. False prophets can usually be identified by what they consistently do not talk about rather than what they do talk about. We can all think of obvious false prophets who are speaking heresy, producing content, and making predictions contrary to the gospel and contrary to the kingdom of God. And these false prophets, they are relatively easy to identify. But the ones in sheep's clothing are those who say all the right things, but neglect saying other things that need to be said. They may not even say anything inherently wrong. They just miss out on entire truths that are necessary to our faith. For example, these people often neglect talking about sin and its effects in our lives. These people neglect talking about the judgment and justice of God. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, it'll be on the screen as well, he writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I would say that this is a fairly accurate description of the world that we live in right now. And so my encouragement is we need to be wise with who we're listening to and what they're saying to see if they are indeed false prophets and false teachers or not. Jesus then says that words aren't the only indicator. Actions matter too. Look at verse 16 in Matthew 7. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, summarizes these verses really well by writing this, quote, The teaching and the life can never be separated. Where there is wrong teaching in any shape or form, it always leads to a wrong type of life in some respect. And this is so true. If if a teacher, if a, a preacher, a prophet neglects certain scripture, certain characteristics of God, certain doctrines of the church, over time, there will be an unhealthy way to give into other scriptures or doctrines that will most likely result in an unhealthy life. And I know that every preacher and even you, every person, has a few things that they love to talk about, and that's okay. There's not a problem with that. But when there is a willful neglect of certain things, we must be cautious. Taking these verses one step further, the scholars of the Holman New Testament commentary write this, quote, the common theme between the two metaphors is the attempt to deceive, but the inability to do so. I love this. A wolf may get away with his deception for a time, but his true nature will become apparent when his hunger forces him to act like a wolf. In the same way, a thorn bush or a thistle cannot keep up the deception of being a grapevine or fig tree, especially when the season for fruit bearing arrives. Who we really are will be made evident by the fruit that we produce. Trees cannot help but produce what they really are. And Jesus says that these trees who are faking it, who are deceiving, they are then cut down and thrown into the fire as an act of judgment. We as people cannot help but produce the fruit of who we really are on the inside. I think the metaphor of the trees can be applied not just to the false prophets, but all of us as well. Think about it this way. We can, we can fake it for three hours on a Sunday morning if you come to first hour and stay for lunch. We can even put up a wall and a facade at work most of the time. But at some point in our lives, who we really are will be revealed. And for those of us who are faking it, there will be judgment. And so let's be men and women who are honest about who we really are, both the good and the bad, and spur each other on to walk in freedom and to bear good fruit. One quick word before I get to how to respond to this first passage. Um, Some of us in here this morning need to hear all of this about false prophets because we don't value correct doctrine like we should. We don't value correct belief or we're loose with believing certain predictions and prophecies that people make. And some of us, we need to do a careful examination of what we're consuming. We need to take it seriously and be on our guard as Paul told Timothy. However, on the other side... 
Some of us love these verses because we love pointing out where people are are wrong. And we enjoy digging into the weeds on every little detail and becoming watchdogs for the church. And so my encouragement to you is that you also take this passage seriously. But don't be so certain that you're 100% correct in all of your theology. There are core doctrines to the Christian faith that we will not bend on as Christians because Christians haven't bent on them for 2,000 years. Personally, I think that list is pretty small, though. There are other doctrines that are necessary, but we call secondary issues. So let's hold those loosely and not throw someone out and cancel them just because he or she may believe something different than you. So looking at this first passage, how do we respond? We want correct theology. We want to know when someone is preaching something not true. We want to be able to spot when some, someone's behavior doesn't line up with their teaching. And we also want our behavior to be genuine as well. So what do we do? I think there is one main thing that we can do. And that is to commit to community. Commit to community because we need each other. Commit to a group of people who are also following Jesus. A group of people you wrestle through theology and scripture with all the while remaining in orthodox Christianity. A group of people who hold you accountable as to what you're letting inside of your mind. A group of people you can talk about your doubts with. In my experience working with others, oftentimes when people start to believe things that don't line up with Orthodox Christianity, it's because they're not living in community. They're going down rabbit holes of podcasts and the internet all by themselves. And the next thing you know, they believe that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. Community can help keep us from drifting. So community helps us with orthodoxy, meaning right belief, but it also helps us with orthopraxy, meaning right action. Okay, this is so key. It's not enough just to believe the right thing. We also must live out what we believe. As we looked at the beginning with the Me Too movement, the fall of Christian leaders and cancel culture as a whole, there is a theme in most of these. They were isolated people. Or, maybe even worse, they were surrounded by people who would never call them out on anything that they did. And this can't be the case with us as followers of Jesus. We need to be in community with people who feel that they have the authority to call us out on our actions when they don't align with our beliefs. And all of this needs to be done in love, in humility, and in grace. Remember, like we talked about a few weeks ago, take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck in someone else's. In college, I had the opportunity to preach every single Thursday night, my junior and senior year, um, in an on-campus ministry. And one week, in my uh, 21-year-old immature and passionate self, I said a few things that... um, weren't wrong in the theological sense, but really insensitive and unhelpful for some people who were there. And to my shame, I had no idea until sometime later 
when two of my roommates, while we were sitting in my car late at night in our driveway, brought it to my attention. They cared enough about me and the other people I hurt to lovingly bring it to my attention. And it was difficult to receive in the moment, I'll be honest, but I learned so much from them. And I think it was helpful, and I hope it was helpful, and I appreciate them for that. And some of us have friends like this, but some of us don't. And so a quick and shameless plug, um, life groups, when done well, can be amazing at this. They can be a setting where you have people to do both of these things, wrestle through scripture and doctrines of our faith, but also talk about our actions. Talk about how you spoke to your wife or your spouse at the last life group meal. Talk about how you lost your temper with one of your children. Talk about how your thought life is just drifting lately. Talk about your general apathy in your walk with Jesus. Whatever it may be, community, and for our context here, life groups can be a place for this. Jesus lived in community with others, and he wants us to do the same so that we may have correct belief and correct action. Next passage here, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Two things to point out here. First, these people who say, Lord, Lord, um, they have an acknowledgement of Jesus and even his deity as a part of the Trinity. Okay, by calling him Lord, they are acknowledging who Jesus actually is. All right, but secondly, it's apparently not enough just to believe the correct things about Jesus. Because he then says, those who do the will of his Father will be the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are a few verses in Scripture that people say uh, will keep them up at night. And this may be the top of the list. In these verses, I think Jesus is primarily speaking about the false prophets from the previous passage. However, I don't think it's being unfaithful to the text to say that this can apply to all of us as well. These people that Jesus is talking about, they were relying on the wrong things for salvation. They were relying on the mighty works as evidence of their salvation. And so the question is, what do we rely on? If it's not correct belief or correct action, what is it? I was talking with Doug um, this week, and he pointed out the connection to Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples, and they come back and they say this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Your names are written in heaven. Apparently, you can perform mighty works and miracles even in Jesus' name. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are done in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think of the magicians who go head-to-head with Moses in Exodus. Obviously, there are spiritual powers at play who give people the ability to perform mighty works. But these spirits are not in submission to God himself. And so we can't rely on these as primary evidence of our salvation. And instead, we must rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And this ties into the last phrase that Jesus says. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I believe that our names are written in heaven because Jesus knows us. But unfortunately, there will be many who think they are known by Jesus, but will one day find out that that's not the case. The word know in Greek here has a very, very deep meaning. It goes beyond a casual knowledge of someone. Okay, this same word is used in scripture to talk about an intimate, physical relationship between a husband and a wife. In Genesis 4, the first verse says this, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. All right, this Hebrew and Greek word that gets translated into know or knew in the ESV is rich with intimacy and has a very, very personal nature. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He calls us to know him in a very personal way because he desires to know us in this same way. And this isn't just about knowing someone's name and being able to give a few stats about them, but this is about knowing someone in an experiential way. So in in praying through this text this week, and as I thought about our context here in Tremont, um, I'll be honest, I realized that the second passage isn't really a problem for us. Uh, Right or wrong, we don't really see many mighty works on a regular basis. Um, And many of us aren't necessarily boasting in them. And we can get into maybe why that is, but that's probably another sermon. Um, But does that mean that this doesn't apply to us here? I don't think think that's the answer. Um, I think there's another way to think about it in our context. And so let me give you some examples. Lord, Lord, were we not elders and deacons and ministers or on staff at our local church? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, were we not involved in men's and women's ministry? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did we not serve on the special services committee, the music committee, the facilities committee, the kitchen committee, the mercy team, the security team, or the missions team? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did we not volunteer at Bible Adventure Club, Salt, Youth Group, Cabin, and help out with VBS every single summer? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did we not teach Sunday school and and help out in the nursery? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did we not play worship every single month? or run video and sound every month, or volunteer as door greeters and at the Welcome Center and serve church lunch. I never knew you. 
Lord, Lord, did we not volunteer at the share closet? And were we not a part of a very healthy and regular meeting life group? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did I not read my Bible almost every day and pray often, morning and night? Did I not give to the church and give to the poor? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, on Tuesday, did I not vote red to stand up for the traditional view of gender and sexuality and to say no to abortion? I never knew you. Lord, Lord, did I on Tuesday not vote blue to stand up for the foreigner and to support the least of these in our society? I never knew you. What are we, what are you putting your hope in other than Jesus? What do you believe is saving you? Does Jesus know you? Yes, of course he knows you to some extent because he's Jesus, right? But does he know you? Like he's talking about in Matthew chapter 7. If you're here this morning and you get the sense that Jesus does not know you, that can change. And Jesus wants it to change. We believe that God created everything that we know and see. We believe that he set humans up with a tremendous amount of potential for flourishing and relationship with him. However, we forfeited that. And we chose to do it our own way. And we still choose to do it our own way every single day. Because we want to be in charge. And honestly, it may seem like it's going pretty well for a while for some of us. But there will be a day where you come face to face with the reality of your sin. And you come face to face with the reality of the holiness and goodness of God. And apart from Jesus knowing you, your future is not very bright. It's one of judgment. And unfortunately, it's one of a place that we call hell. But Jesus came, and he made a way for this not to be your reality. He ushered in a new kingdom with him as the king and his throne as the cross. He defeated sin and death by not staying on that cross and not staying in the grave, but raising back to life. And he allows us to experience this new kingdom and this new way of life right now. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We can know Jesus right now. And I believe we can experience a small taste of eternal life right now because eternal life defined by Jesus is a relationship with him.
And then one day, Jesus will come back and we will experience eternal life to its full extent with Jesus himself. Do you know Jesus? Does Jesus know you? If not, give up. Surrender. Submit. You can't do this life on your own. Turn from your sin and yourself and trust in the good and finished work of God and begin to follow Jesus, not just by yourself, but with others in community. That's my plea to you this morning. I'm gonna pray to close, but if you have any questions about anything that I said this morning or you would like to pray, um, I would love to do so. And if not, there will be lunch in the APR. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And Lord, we in many ways are not. Uh, We have chose to rebel against you and your desired will for us and for this world. And each one of us do it in different ways every single day, but you have made a way for this not to be our reality. And so I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would redeem us and restore us, not just as individuals, but us as a church here in Tremont, that we would be a people who sacrificially love one another, that we would be a people who are salt and light in a world that needs it. And so, Father, have your way. Have your way in our lives and in our homes and have your way in us as a church. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you and God bless.